0: Hello and welcome to Life As It Is. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. On September 15th, Buddhist monastic Sister Clear Grace Dayananda set out across the United States in the Great Aspiration, a Chevy van she has converted into a portable meditation hall. This mobile monastery is the centerpiece of a project she calls the Traveling Nunk, which aims to make Dharma teachings accessible to marginalized communities. Through chanting in public parks, collaborating with local faith groups, and giving out meals to those in need, she aspires to act with compassion and equanimity. In today's episode of Life as It Is, my co host Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with Sister Cleargrace to talk about her travels through the American South, the practice of meeting people where they are, and how we can learn to love those with whom we disagree. So, I'm here with Buddhist monk Sister Clear Grace Dayananda and my co host Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Sister Clear Grace. Hey.
1: Hello. Hi, Sharon. James.
0: Sister Clear Grace, you've been traveling around the country in a minivan, spreading the Dharma teachings in a project you called Traveling Nunk. Can you start by explaining that term, Nunk? What is a Nunk and what is a traveling Nunk?
1: So, this Traveling Project, which the Mobile Monastery, the name of it and the vision is the great aspiration. It holds the power of being able to meet people where they are and taking our Dharma practice off of the cushion. If we look at 2,600 years ago, even in the time of the Buddha, also there were these unprecedented times or these troubled times. I think the practice is, well, how do we meet that where it is and what have we been practicing for? You know, what has the Dharma taught us and where are we at with that and how to engage that, right? So I think after a year of pandemic and being behind the television screen and seeing just the likes of police violence and pandemic and different injustices of the world, our response sometimes can look different if we're practicing for this all of the time. And that's what this vision was. That's how this was inspired. And it was to go there, to meet those things and to really to be present with those things that are in front of us. And traveling nunk was the term that me and one of my best uh, monastic sisters, we would go into town, we would do the shopping every week. People would come up and they say, are you a monk? You know, And we have these certain things in the monastery where the female practitioners who have taken ordination are nuns and the male practitioners are monks. And we would determine whether you were a nun or monk. The nuns live in the nuns' quarters and have the nuns' precepts. and this was the term where we're like, yeah, I'm a monk, I'm a nun, I'm a nun, I'm a monk. Sure, you know, please call me by my true names. Thai has this wonderful poem, The Venerables and Master Thich Nhat Hanh, Please Call Me By My True Names. So all of those things and none of those things at the same time. And if we can kind of hold things that way, I think that we would come to see the Dhamma in a much lighter way. So it's just a reminder of that. If we can just expand and be without the boundaries and transcend certain things that the Dhamma gives us this opportunity to meet things where they are, we have the chance to bring this to the people.
2: So I'm curious about when you started the project and I'm very taken with your description of your inspiration because it was sort of like a movement towards suffering, which of course so many of us are taught all our lives. Uh, Better avoid that, you know, if you can. September 15th was the day of the launch of the pilgrimage. I
1: had been working on the van, converting it for about three months, just gutting it out and then rebuilding it. With the help of a friend, John Calhoun, who is a carpenter, was able to help me build some of the walls and do a lot of the planning. And we worked hard on it from early morning until the end of the evening. And it was really an act of compassion. And there was this energy that came from the Dhamma. I was beyond mental capacity, beyond my knowledge of having to build a home inside of a van. And there were days and times where I was just moving and going. And I had to look back and it was like, this was not me. This is just the power of the Dharma. You know, a lot of research, a lot of YouTube and a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Sparks flying and then learning electricity and plumbing and insulation, ceiling, flooring. Even though it's a small space, you still have to build a home. So that's kind of where the project had just come living in different monasteries and training under different teachers, seeing the Dhamma, like you said, it, it is an act of moving towards the suffering. A lot of us in the Dhamma, we come for that self-reflection or kind of turning in those inward practices of loving kindness. We take on really high dharmas like emptiness, the Brahma Viharas. But if we come to see those things in our meditation practice, at some point they should catapult us into the suffering because Now we have a higher capacity to see all things and to hold things without being carried away, right? This practice of endurance, this Ksanti practice that we take up. You know, I'm very privileged to have wheels and transportation and to be able to move around the country where many of my friends on the streets that I am coming in contact with don't have that opportunity. And car culture has become such a thing in our country because of the economy. So housing is forcing people to live in their cars and in their vans. There's a community of folks who have taken up. It's not by choice. Again, during the pandemic, we're at home for a year. We're watching television. We see what's happening. We see the country taking their last breath on television. I can't breathe. And I think as Dharma responders, you know, our reaction in watching these kinds of things in the pandemic and and I mean, natural disaster, all of the things that come to us by way of injustice and those types of sufferings. But we often kind of pull back or think that we need to go back to the cushion. It should catapult us in the midst of that suffering to bring that peace, to bring that presence, to meet it with one, to come with the wholeness, this wholeness that we practice without having a view. And that's the hard part. You know, I'm here in community a lot of times with my friends on the streets, really just about being able to meet them where they are. And this reminds me of the sutta number four, fear and dread, which is one of my favorite suttas of the Buddha. Where when we have these residues of fear and dread, because we're not pure in body and mind, you know, we as dwellers and monastic dwellers, we would go to the forest and sit at the foot of a tree where there's venomous snakes and, you know, maybe tigers. And here we have black bears. So we go and we sit at the foot of the tree. And when that fear and dread arises within us, so then the Buddha teaches us to stay and to stay in that position if I'm standing to stand, not to walk or to sit down or to lie down until I can subdue that fear. And a lot of practitioners would voluntarily take on this practice. We'll see this a lot of times with the Thai monks taking on a Tudong pilgrimage. And for me, I have been on a pilgrimage in India, but I hadn't been on a pilgrimage right here in my own country where there is a lot of suffering and there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. And there's a lot of insight. You know, if I could walk across the bridge of the civil rights movement or go down and bathe in the Mississippi River where many ancestors have been thrown over into the waters. The Buddhist teachings are full just as they are, and we don't need to change them to fit our life or the suffering that we're seeing, but they do give us that energy and that power to go into the suffering. So when we are faced with it, we're ready for it. We have been training for these times. We're practiced well.
0: You know, I, I just want our listeners to get a sense of what I'm seeing right now. And I wonder if you could kind of walk us through the van that you've built. And I also have a question about building it. But how have you set it up? What's in there?
1: When I have the temple doors open up to the left, I have my altar here. And then I have all of my Dharma collection, all of the Nikayas and the, the Pali Suttas here. I have a place for shoes as we enter. And then I have sort of a Japanese sitting It's my bed as well. I didn't turn it over this morning, so I'm looking at it like, okay, that needs to be turned over. (laughs) But uh, it's also a sitting platform where, where I do my sitting meditation or if somebody would like to come in, they can sit and have Dharma books. There's another library over the top. I have a kitchen. I have a small fridge, a stove, a sink, and I do have a full bathroom as well. Yeah, just all of the things that I would need to dwell in a place and to be able to have conditions conducive for both study and for the practice and the pilgrimage that I do walking during the day.
0: I was thinking of Bernie Glassman years ago. He talked to me about how they started Grayston Bakery. And he said several people said, well, we don't know how to do a bakery. We don't know how to do anything related to a bakery. He said, you know, they had to figure this out. And it reminds me of what you did. You watched YouTube videos, learned about flooring, insulation, wheel wells all sorts of things. So what was that like not to know how to do something and then just be determined enough to learn and do it?
1: There was a time, the electricity, I hit the switch and I stick in these heat guns and I'm sitting here wiring it. I'm going back to the video. I'm pausing it. I'm, I'm, you know, making sure that I've got the white and the green and the (laughs) black and the ground, you know, and I'm like, okay, this is pretty dangerous. I know nothing about this, but I go and connect everything I put in and I hit the switch and it comes on. And there was just this overwhelming joy, sense of pride. This is all for the fruit of the Dhamma. And there was just something about that. Like I said, I lived in monasteries and we built kutis and we built lotus ponds and we built meditation decks and often work really hard to build our temple. And that's what this was about. This was an act of love and compassion for the people being able to meet them where they are, and to walk out the Dhamma in a way that I see fit.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. So I want to go back to you calling the van the great aspiration. Brings to mind the Buddha as Bodhisattva before his enlightenment, sitting under that tree, taunted by Mara. You know, Mara was trying to dissuade him from his aspiration, which was to be a completely free being and not to get up from under the roots of that tree until he would attained that. So. What if you could say something more about that name and how it was, you know, in uh, having that deep and I'd say pure an aspiration and did it sustain, did it change in the course of your journeys?
1: The great aspiration is always growing. I hope that it continues to grow, you know, just living by the Bodhisattva vows and also the Bodhisattva path. Again, what's coming to mind for me is the second mindfulness training, true happiness of. As aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression. I vow in my compassion and generosity to share in generosity in my time, in my acting, in my very way of being what this was about. Bringing ease and relief of suffering to those in my reach, in my space, in my view, in those that I meet, in those that I come across. So it really was about acting out the Dhamma and putting the Dhamma in practice and kind of leaning into that. And that's what the great aspiration was. And that's what it is now. I sometimes serve coffee at the encampments. I really do have a vision to have some type of service truck to serve food to those that are hungry. Maybe people that can offer up donations of coffee or grits and oatmeal, especially during the winter months. Warm soup. I ran several operations in the restaurant industry. So I do have skill set in that. And I would like to have a food truck or a trailer where i'm able to live and practice at the same time but go around to the country and offer those things that are needed sometimes it's clothes or shoes just whatever it is that we can offer to those that need
0: you know i'm curious about what your day is like so you show up in a town so what's the day like how do you reach out to people do you connect with other people who are serving the community and how do you connect with people
1: So it can kind of look like anything planning is really difficult And knowing what's going to happen is really complicated. Van life is very complicated. But I will say I'm coming to this town. I often do ask for support, needing a place to hook up like electricity or maybe to fill up the water tank. These basic needs and challenges are struggles in the van life. And also for our friends that live on the streets, just finding water to clean or to bathe or even to drink having electricity to stay warm or to charge their phone for safety, just these simple needs. So I do often send out a message ahead of time that I'm coming. Uh, If you have a driveway or a parking lot that I can park in safely and plug up, that would be mostly appreciated and very supportive to the vision. Often, sometimes I don't know anybody or know there aren't any Dharma practitioners or maybe they just don't know or time or whatever the situation may be. And I'll spend a lot of time right at the core downtown usually between a Broad Street, a Main Street, and a Martin Luther King, it's really not hard to tell which directions, you know, our communities are in. It can look like just a walking meditation, just walking downtown, greeting everybody, smiling and saying hello, you know, as their curiosity peaks and they say, you're not from around here, huh? Or, you know, what's that get up? (laughs) Who are you? Or kind of thing, you know, and I'll just, you know, really practice being present, right? So not bringing in my misperceptions or, my view or my fear or my judgments or my ideas as well, just truly meeting them where they are. And often in that greeting or in that smile, people are able to welcome me and to greet me back. Sometimes I will visit the visitor center and see if there's any churches doing any work or I'll reach out to the churches on Sunday. Often they're serving food, those types of things. I do go to those places. I think that we tend to overlook or there's fear to walk down into those towns, all towns, you know, that's where we need to be. That's where we have the power of the practice and the Dhamma to be able to walk. There should be no direction that we should not be able to turn.
0: Do you ever feel fear in going into places that you don't know and filled with people you don't know?
1: Very rarely does fear arise. Fear is in our mind and that feeling in the body, subduing it as the Buddha teaches us, but also knowing that this is not me, this is not I, this is not mine. So the same thing with those things that I think to be fearful or that I know to be fearful because of media or because of the way something might look or the way something might feel or the way something might sound, I have to be really careful not to pick that up in the presence. If I am not pure in conduct and body in mind, then I will also invite those things. So it's there. It's there everywhere. Everywhere we are, there is danger or there could be fear or harm, but the practice Mm -hmm. is to really walk in a way that it's not with us. Otherwise, I would be doing a great disjustice to everyone. So it's really important that I walk in with this love and this compassion that I'm imbuing that practice and I'm imbuing this peace, this peace that the Dhamma gives us. And this is what I want to share and bring to the community, even in places where I think that I may not be welcomed, right? So I go into also certain towns where I may not be welcomed. Somebody who looks like me, walks like me, talks like me, is a Buddhist monk or, or, you know, whatever it is that I appear to be to someone, I have to remove that. That's the work that I have to do, removing that view as I walk into a neighborhood or into a community because it's about meeting the people where they are. It's about shedding the self and then coming fully and present to meet them where they are.
0: You've been on the road for a few months now, and I wonder, one, where have you been? And two, I wonder if you could share a few of your favorite moments from your travels so far. What has surprised you? What has delighted you?
1: Really just meeting the people, all walks of life, really receiving Dhamma. So many people are full of wisdom and full of Dhamma. I'm really enjoying Tennessee. It's my first time here. It's a very beautiful state. There's a lot of things going on to help people in the community in different towns. I've been to Cosby, Gatlinburg, Knoxville. I'm in Chattanooga at the moment. And there's just a sense of community. There's truly a sense of community here. I went into Tent City last week and there was this man named James and he's taking a machete and he's clearing out the growth, the overgrowth in the tent area in the encampment we were giving away sleeping bags and I said, Hey, you know, we're giving away basic needs over here. Please come over and and gather anything that you need. And he said, excuse me, ma'am. I said, yes. And he said, my name is James. And he goes, I have to watch the tents and I'm trying to clear out a new plot. And he's just over there working really, really hard. And of course, you know, from, the conventional, first looking at at this individual, you know, with his jewelry and his piercings or, or whatever, of course we could have an idea or a view of what he may be about, but he's just working really, really hard. And I found this in my heart that he was clearing out this plot for people coming in to put up their tents and being able to bring him back a sleeping bag was just a great joy. And that, you know, the gift of giving, it's so much bigger when we're doing the work and we're giving. So often I feel that I'm receiving much more. I think especially as a monastic, you know, we have certain ways and vows and precepts that often we don't serve in this way. We serve in a different way. We take up the Dhamma, we take up the practice, we take up our vows so that we can continue the Dhamma. So our our heirs and our ancestors have been here before us to keep the teachings of the Buddha alive. And this is a great thing. So in order for me to be able to bring this man who needs a place at night to sleep in a warm sleeping bag to help him and the community stay warm, is just a wonderful gift. I'm so blessed to have the fortune to be able to do such a thing. There was another wonderful lady who just needed 60 cents to buy a can of Vienna sausages, and I was given a gift card. So I was able to offer her this gift card, and I think she bought like seven or eight dollars of groceries in the dollar store. And she invited me to have lunch with her. This, you know, is the highest offering. So I'm sitting down in the back of the van and on the bumper, we share a meal where she has her chips and her van of sausages. And of course, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is not a meal. This is not food. And we're supporting the dollar store and this whole, you know, food capitalism and things that are there. But again, these are the things that I have to shed. I'm here to have a meal and to be present with her in this moment. So all of my views and all of my ideas have to kind of go out the window, and this practice of being present and sharing in the meal with her is my work.
2: And you've had a companion on the journey as well, your cat, (laughs) whose name is Upeka, or equanimity in the Pali language. You've talked about equanimity a lot as a quality. actually, as we've been here together. You talked about not rejecting a person because of their views and having a, a heart big enough, wide enough to hold it all. You talked about being able to hold all kinds of different sort of experiences in your heart as well. So I'm wondering if every time you glanced at your cat, you had a reminder of that quality of equanimity.
1: (laughs) Every time I glance at the cat, I have the reminder of dukkha and the, the great attachment of suffering. But yeah, the practice of equanimity coming without discrimination, not differentiating between this or that really is the practice. And it's just a reminder for me as I do enter into the world in this way and walk in a way of the world that's very challenging, right? That is truly the practice.
2: Yeah, and I'd like to say, because I've been asked it a million times, and I'm sure you have as well, the word discrimination, like all of these words, you know, as we struggle to put these things into English, these concepts into English, to not have discrimination or bias does not mean having no discernment. We recognize that, of course, actions have consequences and that cultivating greed, hatred, and delusion will likely lead to a lot of suffering and cultivating loving kindness and compassion will likely lead to a lot of joy and freedom. And so I don't know if you want to say anything about discernment.
1: Yeah, this is huge, right? This mindful alertness and being able to see to see the Dhamma as we do in our spiritual practice and meditation as we are in the world and of our own nature, our own nature of those very things that you mentioned, of greed, craving, all of these desires, our sensual pleasures. We have to know where we are and we have to be honest with ourselves. So this is also the biggest practice. We have to know what we can enter into. We have to know our capacity, but we have to also be willing to do the work, right? To be able to come to the fullness of the measure so that we can see the fruits of our practice and that we can transcend a lot of these things in order to reach the death list, right? So if we can transcend a lot of these things that we do have biases or discriminations or our views about, one of the bigger things being traveling and traveling in the South is this political violence that is in front of us all day long. You know, regardless of what view we hold or what flag we hold or what bumper sticker is on our car. You know, if I have a Buddha Bumper sticker or a Buddhist flag or a gay flag or a political flag, you know, at some point we're picking up one side of the stick so that there is somebody who can pick up the other side of the stick. And we should be really careful with our views, even our Buddhist ones or our practitioner ones or the ones that we seemed to be righteous, right? So this is one of the biggest practices being in the South. This is in front of us all day long, whether it's a news channel or a bumper sticker or somebody's t shirt, somebody's hat. And as soon as we say, well, that's not my view, or I have this other view, or there's this, and it will also allow us to not enter sometimes because of our discernment. We think that, oh, I'm not wanted there. I don't need to be there. That's not where my love needs to be, or I got work to do. I'm not ready yet, you know, but we should be, we should be with the power of the Dhamma. We can come to that. That is the goal is to work towards that. So we can start by practicing in small ways. And that's family members in the holidays, (laughs) you know. I think I'm ready. Let's go practice with our auntie or our uncle at the holiday dinner.
2: (laughs) It seems like the challenge perhaps would be to love and disagree. You know, we're not talking about like a soup where we give up our sense of principles or sometimes very hard-earned sense of right and wrong. But there can be love there anyway.
1: Absolutely. And this love, it's so powerful. It contains so much. It's the vastness in connection. And knowing that those views are there, right? There's not an ignorance or a suppression of them. It's knowing that those views are there and they're okay. And we can hold them right where they are. But right now there's this love and there's this connection and there's you and I, and I am here and you are there. And that moment right there, being able to cultivate that moment that has been some of the biggest learning lessons on this journey with everyone, with people that I come to meet or that I think I might not have met. So when those clinging attachments arise inside of me, and I am making them to be about me, I, mine, as soon as I go that direction, I know that I'm picking up a view. And that's also not mine. But if I choose to pick up that stick, then I know that somebody is picking up the other end. The love can no longer be as it needs to be. When I can see all of its parts, to know that it's there, to come to the fullness of understanding it, to lean into it, to see all of its parts. There's compassions on all sides and there are no more sides. Then I'm able to come to that place in my wholeness, in my seeing all of the Dhamma and say, here we are, and meeting that individual where they are. And in that connection is where we can begin to love our way through those views or those disagreements. But until we can get to that point, and it may not be on both sides, this may just be my work to do. This may just be me entering into this conversation. But the thing is to not allow for it to be an opposite view, an opposing view, or another side, and not in an oppressing way. So this is about seeing all of its parts and coming to the fullness of its measure. So, this is an active leaning in, kind of a destructing or a dismantling, right? And then being able to be there and be present. So, not needing it to change and not needing it to be different. But what needs to be different are those parts that are within me and how I can work on those parts, how I can remove those taints and those defilements within me so that I can come to the fullness and love and expand my heart in the presence of those things without feeding the
0: separation. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Family life can be chaotic, but mindfulness can help. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal daily meditation practice. There are simple, fun techniques that you can use with your kids in the moment to work through difficult emotions and find greater ease and calm. Sign up now for Tricycle's new online course, Mindfulness for Kids and Parents, to learn meditation and yoga techniques that you can practice with your kids or on your own. Led by Atman Smith, Andres Gonzalez, and Ollie Smith of the Holistic Life Foundation, this course offers a practical path to integrating mindfulness into everyday family life. If you're a Tricycle subscriber, you can get up to 35% off all online courses. Enroll today at learn.tricycle.org. Now let's get back to our conversation with Sister Clear Grace.
2: So you've also had a lot of experience living on the road even before this project. And can you tell us something about your experience growing up and how it influences your work now?
1: Sure. So as a single child and a young mother at 17, we often moved from place to place, whether it was trying to find better rent opportunities or run from domestic violence situations. and My mother often worked two jobs, so a lot of times she wasn't home. I was just at home with either the television and a bowl of cereal, and we would be moving. So the next thing you would know, my mom would come in, and she'd say, okay, we have to go. And we would just take what we can in a small amount of time, and we would jump in the car, and we would live in the car. And for me, it was an adventure because it was time alone with my mom, and it was this, you know, kind of like stealth mode Traveling in new places and great ideas. You know, of course, later I started to miss best friends and teachers and being stable and staying in one place. But again, this was often an adventure and time alone with my mom, which I truly had wanted as an only child. So we did that a lot. And I was born in Monterey Bay in California. We traveled up and down the coast all the way to Los Angeles, where I grew up, and all over the state of California.
0: Why don't you tell us how you first came to Buddhism?
1: So this difficult time in my life, there was a separation. I had lost a younger sister. I had lost a best friend. I was just coming out of a relationship and moving into a divorce. And this is maybe over, I mean, a span of many years, but the relationship had lasted maybe 19 years. And looking back on that time and also this samsaric circle of grasping, right? So there was, okay, the job and the career and the promotion and the house, the marriage, it was all of these things. Now we need to have children and all of these types of things were happening. And as those things started to fall away, the values in my life started to change. And I looked inward and I basically came to the five mindfulness trainings, which, you know, were a wonderful savings for me. And I leaned right into the Dhamma, and I knew then that the path for me was to be a nun. worked really hard within that year to change my life so that I could move to the monastery and become ordained.
2: You also have a program called Alms for the People, which I'm very curious about, and I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that project.
1: As a monastic, we do go on alms. Everything that we do is by the community of the people. And so has this build, this van, the great aspiration, all of it is powered by the community of the people. Alms for the People is an opportunity for us to seek help and to gather up the basic needs of those that are around us or those that are in need or those that have less or those that are suffering. So it's a project that we're hoping to continue, especially during the winter months as people are taking to the streets in the extreme weather elements and conditions to offer a sleeping bag, a warm cup of soup, coffee. Sometimes I will just kind of pull up the van and make coffee. I don't need much. All of my requisites have been met at the moment. And anything that's left, I offer to those that are in front of me to share in giving. So that's what alms for the people is. It could look like anything in some of our communities. The children's need shoes, jackets are needing to be met. Hunger is one of the biggest things in the day just whatever it is for the need of the community.
0: You know, you also offer courses and opportunities for Sutta study, which you describe as a mobile learning platform. So among the other things that you do, I've been watching you read from the Pali Canon on YouTube. So what is the relationship between the mobile monastery and this mobile learning environment?
1: So it's about being able to just practice and share wherever I'm at in places that we might not see the temples, making it accessible. Often too, I will just go into a park, a busy park. When I was in Asheville, it was a great place to do this. I would pull up the van and open the doors and read a sutta or sit down and have a meditation. And I have a few people come and join me. When I was in Charlotte, I also did this at a park and had several people just kind of come up and they would sit and, you know, I wouldn't know who they were or they might not be there when I was done sitting. The greatest part of the sharing has been in the parks, being able to invite the bell or to chant. Even oftentimes I'll just sit there and chant or people will come up and ask questions about the Dhamma or about who I am or what I am. Mostly often meditation practitioners. So it's wonderful to see that too in community.
0: It's only been a few months, but have you remained in touch with any of the people that you've met?
1: I have. Miss Sharon will call me every once in a while. She'll call me every Friday, and she'll say, How how you doing? She's uh, 65 years old. She's facing eviction. She is actually the one that shared lunch with me on the back of the bumper in the Mobile Monastery. She's originally from Virginia, and she moved here with her daughter, who got married. That relationship fell apart once her daughter got married and she's kind of been on her own ever since, and she's in a wheelchair. There's also Mr. Frank Prescott, who's also in a wheelchair. I met him in downtown Knoxville, Tennessee. He also keeps in touch and just kind of checks in and how I'm doing and where we'll be. He's waiting for some documentation from the VA so that he could get housing and get off of the streets. So I was interested in knowing how he was going to navigate that and find a place. Often their belongings are stolen. So having documentation in order to find housing is a challenge and a difficulty. And Dharma practitioners, right? So Sangha will call and say, oh, Sister Claire Grace is here. The traveling monk is here. (laughs) What can we do today? And one or two people will come with me and we'll go into the city and we'll just walk. We'll just kind of be or we'll just really greet people in the practice of bringing our presence. And that has been a great joy. That has been a lot of fun. Of course, being in Sangha warms my heart and it's welcoming to know that they're there. And that has been also the great connection. And it's not of any tradition. I mean, it's just everybody.
0: (laughs) You know, I can't help but think about my dad. He used to take meals to people in underpasses in Los Angeles. And I used to wonder the same thing, like, Dad, aren't you afraid? Isn't something going to happen to you? And like you, he was like, pretty sure of himself and what he was doing it was the right thing and he didn't seem to have any fear at all <laughs> so i'm always impressed by this
2: i was going to ask you also about bringing these different communities together because it seems that you have a sense of community it's everybody you know yeah it's very inspiring and i'm wondering if you could say something about that just the sense of community that you've developed
1: i think we've been through a lot as a nation and i think we're all kind of looking for that outbreath in each other right that smile i'm meeting a lot of the spirit of christ here on the streets and definitely in the south it's empowering it's inspiring i met this one bodhisattva who in knoxville she opens up an empty parking lot with a chain link fence and she offers showers and food and places for people to charge their phone every sunday she's with the church they offer prayer and the church is in knoxville They serve food every day of the week. So in some communities, it's just on Sunday because it's downtown, there's no parking and people are off at work. But these churches, they take up a day of the week so that there is a free meal every day. So somebody will volunteer on Monday, Tuesday, and all these churches work together. And this Bodhisattva Marty, she was like, here, Sister Clear Grace, come with me. I just want you to see what we do. And she welcomed everybody. She knew everybody's name help people come back into their bodies whether it was mental health or drug addiction or all of these things that we experience on the streets. I mean, you know, there's covid, there's all of these things that we talk about fear, maybe an idea of separation or or we don't know, even the unknown, but in that moment she was just present and she was there in all of her fullness. We'd greet them and they'd show them that, you know, they got a job at Domino's or whatever and she said this is what we do. You know, she's like, I need a cigarette. I need a cigarette. And then so her way in the spirit of Christ, she was just being there, but not offering the cigarette, but also not saying, no, it's not good for you or we're not going to do this. And none of her views or her judgments at that time, she goes, let's eat a banana. You really need to eat something. So she gives her a banana. She goes, okay, now let's get some water inside of you, you know, and she goes, you're doing great. You're doing great. How can we bring that practice and seeing at this moment, the teachings of Christ in action or Jesus, or the Buddha, this is what I was witnessing. And to me, this was the Brahma-Vihara's in action for those that are suffering or for those that are in need in front of us. It takes great work as a practitioner to be able to be there fully and to be present without our views and our judgments and our ideas. And that moment, community is community. It's just human beings taking care of each other in all ways.
2: Thank you for that. I was also thinking that James, your father, was probably motivated by the teachings of Catholicism, right? Oh, yeah.
0: That's where he'd go. It was related to work that the church was doing.
2: Well, another thing I was thinking, just the pandemic and how it's altered so many things like the communities we go to for inspiration or solace and how many of us either stayed home or were at least not... Being able to go to the physical meditation centers and the, you know, the meeting places that we were accustomed to. And everybody had to find an alternative way to practice.
1: You know, often when I was living at Deer Park Monastery in the Hidden Mountain, and this was a time around the Orlando shooting. And also there was separation, you know, not too far, about an hour away from San Diego at the border. Children Mm -hmm. were being separated from their families in every direction you know, police violence. We were looking at these things and, you know, as a young monastic and somebody who takes up renunciation and we're practicing letting go of the self or the ways that we are in the world and the things that we identify with, this is a foundational training. This is, this is huge. But at at some point when we come to the fullness of who we are, only then can we truly let it go. We can't walk away until we know that. So At some point, it was, here we are up on the mountain enjoying tea, watching the mist come in, and this pleasant abiding, but I hear the cries and the suffering of those at the bottom of the hill. And often, it's not those who come on retreat. I mean, it is, but there are others who aren't able to come on retreat, so they might not be amongst us as we're all pleasant abiding in the oak grove, and the sun is coming through the rays, and we're watching the bird. How do we do that? in the railroad tracks at the underpass or at the border where these things are happening? How do we bring that there? And then we come back and we practice and we continue to come back. So it's this ebb and flow, this going back to our practice and bringing this. And how do we keep expanding our heart, keep expanding until that residue is is no longer there. And how do we do that with Sangha and in community so that we can hold each other accountable and we can hold each other in our practice. And that, that fear can lesson for us, right? And we can stand up and be the Dharma in the way that we know it to be. So it was often about coming down off the mountain, and I think that's also what the vision of the Great Aspiration is. It just happens that again after the pandemic, this is also another way.
0: So we're running short on time, Sister Clear Grace. Are there any other stories from your travels you'd like to share?
1: This is all the fruits of the community and the fruits of the Dhamma. And I'm truly grateful to be able to walk out this vision and this mission and that you are all with me all the time. I'll often be doing a driving meditation and the leaves are turning and I'm on the highway waving at the person next to me. And it's such a joy. It's such a great fortune. I just want to express my deep gratitude again to my teachers to all of the community who continue to support and to find this liberation.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you could take us out with a short meditation.
1: Let us just kind of ease into the sounds of the community and all that is there with us. Falling into our breath, wherever it is and bringing to mind all of the blessings, all of our blessings, blessings coming down like rain. As we receive those blessings, we can share our blessings with those around us and others, knowing that I have, another has. What I don't have, another has. And together we have it all. How fortunate we are to have the teachings and to have the Dhamma. this energy this love that is imbued in our hearts and in our bodies and on our face and in our smile we can take that with us into the world and just see just see what that looks like what that looks like in action how can we share this today tomorrow how will we share this loving kindness.
0: So, it was great to see you both. And as always, Sharon, thank you for being my co-host. It was lovely. Thank you so much, Sister Clear Grace.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you, Sharon. May the demo hold you.
0: You've been listening to Life As It Is with Sister Clear Grace. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org and let us know what you think. Life As It Is and Tricycle Talks are produced by As It Should Be and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.